Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. are the players the towers are the players y'all the towers are the players the towers are the players y'all <laughs> welcome to really true fiction uh my name is luke mason and my name is david parker and in case you haven't guessed yet which i'm sure you will given the title <laughs> today we're talking about the two towers lord of the rings one of the greatest books out there yeah uh and that a little opening song Courtesy of, of the musician among the two of us, Luke Mason. <laughs> Back in the day before YouTube, there was this website called E-Bombs World. And, Al- and there's another one called Albino Black Sheep. So this was before there were videos that were easy to stream. You would go f- see Flash videos, right? And I remember after Lord of the Rings came out, so maybe like around 2003 or 2004, there's this video with like a kind of hip-hop golem. And he came up and there was <laughs> like a... I don't remember this at all. <laughs> there was like a really cheesy... Uh, background with Middle Earth, and then there was a golem singing the towers of the players, y'all. <laughs> I probably didn't have my really poor beatboxing in the background, though. <laughs> yeah, so uh, whenever I think of the two towers, I have this kind of bizarre memory from <laughs> uh, Gollum rapping a bit about the two towers. Was that the same? company did the flash video where he just flew on the eagles all the way to mordor and just dropped the ring in and it was like why didn't they just do that from the beginning i don't remember that one huh. yeah that... i think it might be a newer one but it's out there somewhere anyway um thank you for indulging us today's episode is a continuation from last time when we did fellowship of the ring and today we're going to be talking about the two towers um again if for some reason you haven't <laughs> listened to the fellowship of the ring episode yet i would encourage that you do i think maybe it might set the stage for some of the things we talk about today and um just another reminder that even though we both have read the books how many times have you read the books actually only twice and i think you said only once yeah i've only read them once when i was i was a teenager i think i was 14 yeah i first read them when i was 11 for the same reason our our mothers being sisters uh said that we had to read the books before we watched the movies so i did the same thing before Actually, I watched Fellowship of the Ring in the cheap theater because I didn't know about it until my mom was like, oh, I think my mom was talking to your mom and saying how much they loved it. And so I got to then read it and go. And how old were you the second time you read them? Uh, 17. Okay. So still a little while ago for both of us now. Yeah, we're we're not super young men anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so most of our thoughts and what we're working off of is mostly the movies, even though we do re- recollect the books a little bit. Uh, the movies are our main 
source for this. So hopefully it's a little bit more accessible to everyone out there listening. We don't want you to necessarily have to read 100 pages about trees in order to listen to our podcast. So not not to say that Tolkien's work is not amazing. It obviously is. But uh, the movies are definitely more accessible. So. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they're, they're just so long. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm, I'm really serious. The details are wonderful. But it's the same with uh, Les Mis, Victor Hugo's Les Mis. There is a 100-page section that doesn't advance the plot at all. Yeah. And I think, I mean... You read it once. Yeah. Right? Read it. Read it for sure. Read it for sure. But Lord of the Rings was the first time I remember, and I was a teenager, but it's the first time I remember movies coming out that I really felt uh, aesthetically did the book justice. Yeah. I actually think that particularly Fellowship, but even all three of them for sure, made you feel like they captured the spirit of the story. Not, Not obviously not all the content, but the spirit. And that's hard to do with movies. Yeah. And they also made, I thought they made Middle Earth look real, like a real place as I imagined it. Yeah. And it's interesting now that New Zealand is Middle Earth to all of of our generation, really. (laughs) Yeah. But just how a fantasy world could come alive and not disappoint my imagination. Like as I'm re- when I was reading Lord of the Rings and just imagining, and I had read The Hobbit previous as well, just imagining what does Gondor look like? What does Rohan look like? What would Mordor look like? Like what would Moria? What would all these places, Isengard, like how they managed to shape the settings of it? I just was blown away. I think that's really a credit to Peter Jackson's love of the story itself that he was able to do that because I completely agree. When you watch those movies for the first time as a person who's read the book, you feel appreciated as an appreciator of that story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so thank you, Peter Jackson. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so just before we get into the meat of today's episode, I have a couple uh, corrections of things I said in the last episode. So in the last episode, The Fellowship of the Rings, I mentioned uh, the philosopher Karl Popper, who I still love <laughs> from the last episode. That hasn't changed. But I referenced his book, and I called it The Liberal Society and Its Enemies, and it's actually, the title is The Open Society and Its Enemies. I know a small mistake, but I'm doing my best to catch myself in all the ones I make. So it's The Open Society and Its Enemies, and then I would say for a liberal-minded person <laughs> to read them. <laughs> I mean, you got the spirit of it. It was yes, just the, yes, the exact just the title. title. In case you guys are looking for it and not unable to find it. And my second mistake is a little bit more embarrassing, but you know what? I want to throw what I've done incorrectly into the light. And uh, last episode, I referenced Trotsky being a political rival of Lenin, when, of course, (laughs) it was Stalin that he was the political rival of, and they were both following in the footsteps of Lenin, or so they perceived. So... 99% 99% agreement. Everything he said about the relationship is true, just wrong. Yeah, wrong I got I got so uh, excited in the point of comparing how two people who are so ideologically similar become bitter enemies because they're focused on the little bit that they're not similar about that I forgot my history. <laughs> so apologies out there to anyone who's read grade 10 history book because <laughs> that was basic shit. So um, last episode, we started with Frodo, and I definitely want to talk a little bit more about Frodo in this episode, but I wanted to begin with, I think, the character that even though there's a couple shots of him in Fellowship of the Ring, he really becomes 
super important and encompassing to the story in Two Towers, and that's Gollum. So when you were reading it originally, like the first time you read Lord of the Rings, what was what did you think about Gollum? Because obviously he's also in The Hobbit. Yeah, so I think I mentioned this last time, but I remember my mom reading The Hobbit to me and saying, hey, when you're older, there's more to this story. And I was super excited. So very much when I was reading uh, Lord of the Rings, I would say I had The Hobbit's Gollum in my mind when I was thinking about it. Um, I didn't know the backstory to the same degree at the time. Uh, that you learn later and you learn through Lord of the Rings. I think my initial thought was kind of just disgust at this creature who'd been consumed by the ring and was trying to steal it from Frodo. But more than that, I uh, when watching the movie, you uh, you think about that line from Moria the, that we brought up last time, the pity line, and you think, well, if you've read the book, you already know what's going to happen with Gollum. And so it's the character development, the movie itself. I mean, I remember the first time you see Gollum, you're just like, they did an amazing job cinematically with this character. But more than that, they, they make you feel like this sense of pity for him throughout all three movies. Yeah, he's um, he's got this kind of weird patheticness about him that in his moments of like when he's really dangerous it, they're they're a little bit surprising the moments where he comes out and can like has flashes of brilliance or a little bit of like venom in his teeth i think that it takes well he certainly confuses frodo a bit with that yeah like when you think about the evil that, let's say, Gollum represents. I think we've kind of all seen this this kind of evil in society. It's like a desperation. It's it is an addict at at their worst, right? It's it's a person who 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 they're still a person. They still have value. You still see um you still see these flashes of light and goodness in them, but they are consumed by their addiction to the point where they they can't even control themselves around it necessarily. And you struggle to see the Smeagol in the Gollum, right? It's like, I think, anyone when they when they encounter someone with addiction, whether it's a family member or, or someone on the streets who's who's suffering with addiction, it's a lot of people have trouble seeing the good in them. They, they can't, or, or they want to feel better by looking at them. But really, it's the addiction that's the problem. It's, it's giving into, repeatedly giving into temptation. Mm-hmm, yeah. As we said last time, the ring as temptation. Uh, you might as well think of Gollum as the most tempted and the most having given in to that temptation, right? Uh, of any character, really. Yeah, and as we learn more from later in the story, this is something that goes way back. The ring pro- prolonged his life uh, physically, but deteriorated him in every way that is kind of meaningful to being alive, where he had to just go live in the shadows and the darks of the mines and kind of become not alive right he was physically alive but that's it and yeah i like that connection of to an addiction that he has because he clearly has of course he does right yeah he's 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 all like they they say in in the movie and in the book consumed by the ring right and we also see the path that happens to people who who give into temptation it's it's really an allegory for not just the temptation of power, but the temptation of anything that can kind of destroy us. 
and how he will take down anyone who's there to help him, right? He develops a pretty, like, what what at least could be a pretty good friendship with Frodo. He gets Frodo to trust him, and he does things that are trustworthy, and he even saves Frodo at one point in the when Frodo falls into the water looking at all the faces under the water, right? So, like, there's so much there of, like, I wonder, it'd be so interesting to talk to someone who is an addict about that, how they feel about the people who are kind of giving them some, like, opening a door for them, right? Giving them some slack. Or when we look at the story, how they feel about the people they see becoming addicted to something. Because really, part of what we're seeing in Two Towers is how the ring is starting to affect Frodo. And who can appreciate that more than Gollum? Exactly. There's almost a sense of camaraderie between the two that Sam can't have because they're both addicted to this thing. And you see this developing, and it it hurts Sam because he's like, how can you like this creature? Look at him. He's evil and pathetic, and he just wants to steal the ring from you. But what Sam doesn't understand... They're going, they've gone through and are going through something similar. Yeah, I mean, I guess Gollum, I never really thought about that before, but how Gollum looks at Frodo a little bit as, a, oh, yeah, you kind of, you feel what I'm going through, right? Like, you, you can have a little bit of empathy for me, and I can have a lot of empathy for you because I'm seeing, like, I, I've taken that drug. I've been around that block many times. I know how good it feels. Yeah, I just never really thought about how he might be connected to Frodo in another level that way. And, you know, Smeagol is free, right? There is always that battle uh, between the addict and and their addiction where at times they feel like they've overcome it and they talk about relapsing, right? And and he does have that moment of clarity where he wants to go back and be the the good person, the non-addicted person, the helpful person, and he feels like he's free. He's, He's beat Gollum. But he doesn't. <laughs> no, no, he, he doesn't. Yeah, that's interesting how the golem wins in the end. You know? I mean, don't want to get too much into Return of the King, but from what we see in Gollum, like the those scenes where Gollum and Smeagol that are so amazingly shot to oh, make it look just like incredible. Two different characters arguing, and they are two different characters, but just how uh, they managed to film it in such a way that it's the different angles capture the different facial expressions and demeanors and mannerisms so perfectly. Where, like, poor, what can poor Smeagol do? Gollum is just so big and strong, and Smeagol's so alone, you know? And, and, and Smeagol's so hurt and broken by, by what his addiction has made him do in the past killing his old friend, which we find out obviously later, but I think is important to this guy's character, what his addiction has done to him and the people he loved. And then caused him to, like you said, become a recluse. Like it, it has complete control. I mean, it was only the, the caring nature that we get from Frodo that even brought Smeagol back into the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually um, have a little note here that the two adjectives that so easily or first come to mind for me with Gollum slash Smeagol is he's like ferocious and then pathetic, right? Like he he vacillates between like being so angry and self-righteous and like 
can dish it out. And then as soon as like even a little bit comes his way, he just totally crumbles and like starts crying basically. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because I work with kids and one of the, every once in a while I come across a kid that just has this unfortunate characteristic where they're so mean. They are just always teasing other kids, bullying them, dishing it out, dishing it out. As soon as one kid says something back to them, they just, they can't handle it. They, they break down, they complain, they talk about how unfair this other kid is being to them. And you see the hurt and you want to help, but there's just some part of that other side of them that isn't letting them yet uh, move on and see their own agency in why, like they, they can't see why the other kids are picking or, or fighting back even, right. Or taunting them back because of the deep, let's say Gollum side of them that is um, too self-assured and self-righteous to allow any sort of thoughtfulness and like part of my job is helping kids develop these skills and most kids aren't either or about it but every once in a while I come across a kid that just will dish it out dish it out dish it out and can't take it and it's just funny because I just immediately (laughs) those kind of kids remind me of Gollum and I think the other thing to think about in, in that circumstance is probably it's a defense mechanism because they're obviously not strong. It's not a, a raw confidence that they're displaying. And, and in the case with Gollum, he's this weak villain. Like, he's he's pathetic. Like you said, there's there's such a patheticness to him. And yet he puts on this kind of facade. And he is smart and a little bit cunning. And I He's think, conniving. Yeah. Like, he, he's got some, some serious skills he's developed over 900 years or whatever it is that he's been around for. And then I think of those kids and I'm like, it's, it's a defense mechanism because they feel weak because they're small. It's totally a defense mechanism because all these kids, as soon as you say you're going to talk to their parents at the end of the day, they're just like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. So there's obviously so much more going on with anyone who's got something like that. But it was a connection I made where I was like, oh, this poor kids are they're golemizing. <laughs> and, it, and it makes sense that you you'd see that too because they're kids so they are you're, you're an adult they are kind of they're a lot weaker than you so unfortunately because there just isn't a lot of let's say support for the smeagol side of his character the golem kind of wins he he golem's a little bit more clever than smeagol smeagol's more kind but a little bit less intelligent than the golem is right well, yeah, like when uh, when Gollum reappears, right? So after Smeagol thinks he's won, and then but Gollum reappears, it's actually in a moment of weakness where where Smeagol's being hurt, and Gollum's like, "Hey, I'm here. I can protect you from all of this. Just you know, let me take over, and I'll get you what you need." Which in that in that particular case is is just feeling secure. But more than that, really, when we know when Gollum takes over, what does he want? Gollum wants the ring. Yeah, and he's he's dangerous. He's so dangerous, like an addict. He needs that fix again, and the ring being the fix. And he sees the big threat is Sam, right? Like Gollum sees legitimately and correctly so. Sam is the threat because Sam is the character that doesn't – like he sees the Gollum still, right? I think he's got his, his slinker and stinker kind of thing that Sam says about Gollum. But Gollum sees, okay – 
Sam's on to me. He knows what I'm actually looking for. I've got Frodo kind of fooled here because of all of the things I say and do to Frodo. And Frodo's a little bit down this path now, too, with what the ring's doing to him. So, like, Gollum, he, what does he do? Like, he knows. He puts a wedge between Sam and Frodo, right? Like, he manages to put suspicion in Frodo's mind of Sam's character. And, like, we see this... Uh this kind of characteristic in addicts all the time if they feel like someone is trying to separate them whether it be a loved one or whatever it is from the thing that they want they will drive wedges they will lie they will cheat they will steal to get what they want uh and it's really interesting we all need to remember the sams in our life when they're trying to protect us even even if we love someone or something we have the sams in, in our lives that are saying maybe that's not a good idea maybe you need to separate yourself here they're trying to protect us because no, you can't fix other people when they're in that situation. They have to want to change and fix themselves, and it takes a lot of work. And it's a deeper reflection on how powerful this ring is in how Frodo is able to be tricked a little bit by Gollum as to what Sam is, right? There's scenes where Sam is just, or Frodo is not as chummy with Sam and then gets a little bit suspicious and just whenever Sam and Gollum have an argument, he kind of just sides with Gollum um, to keep the peace. And you can see this working and working how when I'm watching this, I'm like, Frodo, what the hell, man? Like, can't you see? Like, it's just too obvious, right? It's too obvious. And then once you take even a further step back, it's like, oh, man, it's not obvious to Frodo. And that's actually um, how far in the pit he's getting already from the ring weighing on him and the ring being in this uh, metaphor like a drug and he becoming more and more addicted to it Frodo starting to deny reality a little bit along with Gollum right and what's a deeper I don't know like I can't think off the top of my head of a deeper denier of reality than um, starting to become suspicious of the person who's had your back the most who and right? and who you know you've known for your whole life and has displayed immense character and suddenly you're you're lashing out at them or you're you're siding with it's like a teenager who you know is hanging around kids who are probably a bad influence on them but like lashes out at their parents you don't you don't love my friends you don't care about my friends and the parents just trying to like protect this kid and the kid would rather be with someone who understands quote unquote understands them than with the people who genuinely care about them yeah, and Frodo, so Frodo wants to give like sympathy to Gollum and Sam is trying to protect Frodo from what he sees about that, right? And what a what a difficult spot that puts Sam in, hey? Where he just has to depend on what he knows Frodo, for lack of a term, what Frodo really wants or really needs, as opposed to the things that Frodo's saying in this, in moments, right? And like, it is really, I, I don't know what, like, what do most people do in a situation where suddenly you're being pushed away by someone you care that much about and treated poorly because they are stuck in the, going down into this pit, like you said. And it's not like, at least in Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo are in a pretty precarious <laughs> situation. I mean, I think Sam's line is, he'll throttle us in our sleep. Like, the downside of making a mistake with Gollum 
the consequences are huge, right? He's it's not just oh burned again by some jerk who took ten bucks or something, right? Like they're on a quest for destroying this ring and the unbelievable metal that Sam shows to stick through all this and look out for Frodo and look out for Frodo from Frodo, even in his as Frodo's slipping. Well, like, that's character intelligence, right? That's looking at the situation and not not allowing yourself to become narcissistic about it and be like, well, now I'm my emotions are hurt. All I was trying to do is help this Frodo, and now he's siding with Gollum. Like, I'm going to get bitter and upset, but Sam never does that. Sam's like, nope, I, that's Sam's character. I'm sticking to Frodo. I'm going to be here. Now I'm just going to have to watch Gollum all the time because Frodo can't. And I mean, I I forget if it's in the movie, but he basically doesn't sleep because he's always watching Gollum. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good too because I think that Frodo has a few moments in Two Towers where he's not too far gone, right? Like he does come back. There's that scene at the when they're at the Black Gate, where Sam they've gone to the Black Gate into Mordor, and you know they just can't get in that way. There's too many. <laughs> Well, I, I think the gate closes, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it closes, yeah. but like they have a chance to run, but then they don't. Like Gollum pulls them back and says there's another way. Again, set in a way that seems so promising, but really Gollum is still just conniving here because we all know what's on that other path, right? He's feeling really desperate at this point. He's like, I need to get the ring somehow. And he's like, I'm not going to get it if, if Sauron gets it. You'll give it to him, I think is what he says. You'll give it to him. But it, even still, like... At this time, when Sam needs Frodo, Frodo's still there for him because Sam, you know, slides on the shale down to where he's going to be easily seen by the guards of the Black Gate. And then Frodo goes down and hides him under his uh, Lothlorien uh, tunic or cape. And so it's not yet like Frodo doesn't see what Sam does for him. He's not lost. And that's what's kind of, I, I don't know, I just thought that was so cool how we still see the heroism in Frodo that he's like, oh man, I am feeling this ring and yet I still got to go save Sam. So it's Sam's, I don't know, like, is it Sam's diligence that did that? I don't know, but I I like that Frodo's not too far gone either though, right? Like it gives, it's another thing where Sam could be like, oh yes, okay. I, I don't need a ton of reassurance, let's say, but as, if you give me this little bit, Frodo, I can make that last for miles and miles in my helping you. And and that really uh, says what what we've been saying about Sam. He only needs a little bit to, to stay the course and to keep... And now it helps, I think, in this particular situation that they both know they have a mission. They have something they have to accomplish that's real, that is for the sake of all of Middle-earth. So that mission gives them reason to to keep going. And I think in life, we kind of need those things where we're kind of looking out at things and saying, well, where are we trying to go? What are we trying to accomplish here? Because friendship isn't just about looking at one another. Friendship is looking at a goal together and saying, this is what we're going to try to achieve. And I think that helps Sam keep going too, because he knows what's at stake. Yeah. And poor Frodo, (laughs) poor, poor Frodo. He's like, this journey is so long and they start going in circles, right? And so once you go in circles, you're essentially making mistakes 
and then mistakes compound to more mistakes and more mistakes and Frodo is just getting so tired so when they even meet Gollum in the first place there's like a little bit of a weakness in Frodo that I I would say he chooses not to see the Gollum in Smeagol. He chooses to see the Smeagol, right? So we get the one side. I think Sam maybe sometimes chooses too much the other side, but Frodo chooses to see Smeagol and the Smeagol who can help them. And that fatigue, I think, is really one of the things that helps, like is making Frodo not think of things as clearly as he might otherwise and leads him open to being taken advantage of by Gollum. And yeah, I just, I guess I was like, wow, yeah. If you get too tired (laughs) or too lost, you do start looking for like an answer in a place that probably a good chunk of your mind knows you shouldn't, but it's just any relief right now will do, right? And and you're looking for companionship and like, as much as Sam and Frodo love one another and care about one another, Sam can't understand what Frodo's going through. So I think there, I really do think there is that bond of, well, this guy at least knows how hard it is to bear the ring, to be a ring bearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he's kind of got his back, you know, <laughs> but Gollum and Frodo are <laughs> in another life. There's like a, there's like a happy time story with, <laughs> Gollum and Frodo skipping through the trees. They're best well, friends. Yeah, they're having so much fun. And Smeagol tries to make it that way too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Master is our friend. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah there yeah. is. There's a total. There's like a. There's a like a fairy tale version of <laughs> this story where uh, Sam just goes away and they uh, maybe. <laughs> well, obviously, Gollum is only chasing Frodo because he has the ring. But I imagine a scenario where. Gollum and Frodo are just playing in the forest. <laughs> They're like like young Gollum, young Frodo, like, woo, let's go do some fun stuff because we're addicts together. <laughs> you know, living under a bridge together, yeah. just, you know, hanging out. <laughs> yeah. A couple more thoughts about Sam. I love how, like, there's the scene where he saves Frodo. Like, Frodo is just so beaten down. Um, I think it's probably near... Near the end of Two Towers, where the Sam and Frodo are in Osgiliath with Faramir and the Nazgul are coming and attacking, and Frodo's just, he can't even bear this, right? And Sam says, so he's he's like leaning to give the Witch King, I think it's the Witch King, one of the Nazgul anyway, the, the yeah, ring. I think it is the Witch King. Right? Yeah. And there's this great scene where Sam runs up and pushes him away and says no and like i don't know the lord of the rings version of pushing a friend out of the way of a moving car or something like that right and i was like oh man sam like sam is the very last person to leave where he'll even jump in front of a witch king for you right like yeah and like where's Gollum? we don't know he's around but uh he's not saving him from the witch king he's scared of the witch king he knows what the witch king has been hunting him for a long time but one of the things, I mean, obviously then one of the most famous lines and one of the best lines is spoken because they're kind of sitting there after Frodo's like got his sword to Sam's throat. After he saved him, he rolls over and has his sword to his throat. And he's like, and he's like, it's me, Frodo, it's me. <laughs> and he and he wakes up from his whatever stupor of of trying to protect the ring. And 
just lies down. He's like, what are we even doing, Sam? And Sam looks at him and he says, well, you know, Mr. Frodo, I've been thinking about all those stories we used to listen to when we were young, you know, full of fright and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end possibly be happy? But now I think I know what the heroes in those stories were holding on to, Sam, that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. And I just, I love that quote. It's, it, it even encapsulates a lot of the really the real truth in fiction that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Yeah, I mean it's the total sense I get out of every single Kurt Vonnegut novel, for example, where he's totally lambasting all of the crazy shit about the world, but in a manner that still is cherishing a lot of the really good things about it. It's, so it's not just tearing down the temple; it's reorganizing the temple and keeping the nice stuff right and and also i will say that the cinematography in that scene is great right where it's going through all the things that are happening throughout the middle earth at that moment where kind of the, the tide is turning let's say yeah that that quote you said it i also made a note of it, it reminded me of uh, the movie seven <laughs> which is not a happy movie but at the end of it morgan freeman's character is quoting hemingway when he says the world is a wonderful place and worth fighting for, <laughs> yeah, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> but then he also says, I agree with the second part. <laughs> so it ends on a little bit of a sadder note, but Brad Pitt is being driven away in a police car because he just... Because he just murdered Spoilers. No. <laughs> Sam is the blue-collar hero. It's You keep going because there's still some good in the world. And I mean, Sam can remember the Frodo from the Shire. He can remember the Shire. He can remember even the elves, right? Like, even in all their travails. And, like, these guys, well, these hobbits, Frodo and Sam especially, are seeing, they're seeing the darkest things, and they haven't even seen the darkest thing yet, right? Like, they haven't even gotten into Mordor yet. And there's some huge things still ahead of them. And so just that idea of, like, man, every day when we have to go out and do stuff we probably don't always like but like why why do i do this right and for me it's well every shitty day i have and every day i have to go spend hundreds of dollars on my car when i don't want to and (laughs) have to go to meetings that i don't want to go because i feel like unfortunate tension or you name it right i think well you know what there's still like rock and roll and there's still Nintendo, and there's still uh, hockey and beer and my friends, and there's still humor and jokes. And okay, it's still like there's some good things to go put up with things that you don't want, or even like overcome them. Let's say that would be a better way to put it for what Sam and Frodo do, right? Like they overcome the evil, they don't just put up with it, and it's for those good things. So, yeah, you're right, that is probably an encapsulating line. I do just want to like one last final meditation on Sam, because again, I think Sam is incredible. Like he is steadfast. He's the steadfastest, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yep. But uh, I think another reason why I like him so much is that he's also not totally uh, perfect. Like I think in the way that Frodo gives way too much credence to the Smeagol, and discounts the golem sam although he proves out to be correct since in our lives we're not always in such 
life or death situations as they are in two towers. I think Sam could have probably tried a little bit harder to see the Smeagol in the Gollum. Yeah, there's there's arguments I've heard that have been made on really nerdy forums about Lord of the Rings that Sam actually drove Smeagol to become Gollum again with his treatment of Gollum. Now, I don't think that's true, and I, I think when we blame ourselves for that because we're not nice enough, but it is important to remember the Smeagol and everybody, no matter how far gone they are. Totally. We have to remember to love the goodness in each. There's some good, not just in the world, but in everybody. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, whatever. If you think Sam's treatment of Smeagol made Gollum, I think a countervailing point to that is the centuries upon centuries where Gollum had the ring and it corrupted him. <laughs> yeah. No, no, for sure, for sure. But but that's neither here nor there yeah. because I think my point is beyond Lord of the Rings where Sam, like I see, Sam could have kept all of his skepticism and his suspicion and not its suspicion. He could have kept his wariness and his alertness to Gollum, but still been like even... 10% nicer or 15% nicer or like even give him half of a benefit of a doubt just something or even like have a conversation with him I mean obviously <laughs> Gollum slash Smeagol is not the easiest creature to talk to because of his schizophrenia <laughs> right but I think in a much less epic <laughs> situation where maybe you or me are faced with a person who has tendencies that are off-putting, let's say, or even dangerous, once we can like at least make sure that we're physically safe from a person, I think the next like ethical step is to try and learn about them. And the best way to do that is to talk to them. And I just think that's some, probably something Sam could have done a little bit better. But again, I think that makes Sam even more interesting because he's not just... He's not Mary Janeing it or whatever. Like he's not so perfect that we we're like exactly. Oh. He's actually uh, to build on that a bit. I would say there's a one scene in the movie that I've always kind of thought was funny and gets quoted a lot, which is when he's making the stew, potatoes, <laughs> stick them, smash them, put them in a stew, put them in a stew, and he's like, "No, why would you cook a rabbit right like it raw and wriggling?" <laughs> and I mean, even in that moment, you see that Sam's kind of just mocking Gollum like oh you've never heard of potatoes and he doesn't need to do that even if he's not necessarily being nice you're, you're you're right he needs to have a conversation now it's a funny scene and like maybe we're digging too deep into this but I really agree with that point is you don't have to mock them especially people who are kind of pathetic like Gollum yeah, you don't Smeagol at this point. yeah you're right that's a perfect example of how Sam unnecessarily puts on an extra layer of distance between him and Gollum when it could be a moment of explaining what a stew is unsarcastically. Exactly. The sarcasm wasn't necessary and built out the animosity between the two of them. Yeah, because sarcasm is, though in the moment satisfying, it's not a good communication tool, right? <laughs> sarcasm is best used with people that already know you love them and feel secure around you and have confidence in your relationship, I think. <laughs> yeah, and so, I, again, Sam, incredible hero, not perfect, and even more interesting because of that, I think, right? Because it gives, it also gives Sam somewhere to go in his, let's say, 
mental development or social and emotional development where it gives his character arc it's an interesting character arc yeah 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 um how i mean we could talk about the cows come home about what Gollum was going to do with or without sam but sam doesn't need that extra layer of talking caustically to uh, with a little bit of acid yeah that doesn't need to be there yeah uh so poor sam poor frodo poor Gollum. (laughs) but really near the like for a good chunk of this movie poor theoden (laughs) hey he's having a rough go yeah poor poor guy (laughs) like his kingdom is just getting also like this is just go his character just goes to show the cultural penetration that lord of the rings has had right because i don't know the number of times i've heard people say when referring to someone oh that's a worm tongue that character and that whole situation with Theoden and Wormtongue has become a, a cultural meme, right? And and I think it's it's fascinating that there's so many things in Lord of the Rings that have done this, like the quote that I just shared, but Lord of the Rings captured uh I guess our generation in the way that Marvel's captured the next generation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean Grimo Wormtongue, I've got a number of thoughts about him. <laughs> right. Well, let's go to Theoden first. All right. Well, so, you, what are your thoughts they're, on they're, Theoden? They're intimately related. Like, I don't think you can't have what Theoden becomes in the movie without where he was, and where he was can't happen without Grima Wormtongue. So, it's super important that Grima is there. Grima Wormtongue being the kind of sniveling kind of an advisor who's just whispering lies and corrupting his mind. And like this, I don't think the movie does perfectly. It does it well, but there's not enough explanation of the magic that's kind of occurring here. Like Wormtongue is basically magically corrupting Theoden's mind and doing it through the power well, of Sauron. Yeah, okay. That's what I was going to say. Like Grima has some Saruman magic in his fingers, does he not? Yeah, it's just, or his tongue. Yeah, in, in his tongue, literally. Yeah, it's a strong muscle on him, just so, like so everyone. Wh- why do you think that Theoden gets corrupted? Like, so he does? why he gets corrupted? Well, he, I think he gets corrupted in the same kind of trajectory as he gets uncorrupted, where he, like any person, even a king, he gets probably a little bit uncertain of what he thinks about a situation right and so he externalizes his anxieties or his fears right and so i i actually my note on him is like theoden only becomes the strong king when he loses his sophist right the person whispering sweet nothings into his ear and he gets back to the strength of his own mind right like he gets back to his own mind literally and that's actually how you can be regenerative of yourself is when you get back to trusting your own thoughts, your own conscience, your own presence in the world that Theoden had. Now, how he lost it, I don't know. I don't remember in the narrative. Uh, I don't remember why Grima is even there other than this is a time of <laughs> frightfulness with all these orcs coming back into the land, right? But Theoden, he doesn't, he literally transforms back into himself when he becomes in possession of his own mind. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a deep motif in a hero or a king, let's say, the wise king, who can, he has this ability 
to want to help, right? Like he wants to help, but if he's not certain of how to do it, he's, he's, if he's externalizing these things to people that anyone can come in and say, like, even in, even though in the movie, it's just Grima, it's just one guy. If you think about this, like many different people giving you many different opinions, pulling you in many different ways, you're not yourself if you are conflicted so much like that. And that doesn't mean only think your own, like, as long as you just don't listen to anyone else and do what you want to do, you're going to be doing that'd be missing the point of what i'm saying the point is that he has developed a sense of what he actually values in the world and to the extent that he gets away from that he's an old pathetic king and the extent that he's able to get back to that he's a young well (laughs) relatively young vibrant leader right and so it's not until he can bring back you gotta always strive to have your own mind and your own mind doesn't mean you don't seek out counsel or advice or thoughts from other people but it means that you don't internalize everything that people say as yours now because that i think is what chops you down instead of builds you up and like the thing that theoden exposes himself to in this narrative is a belief that there's nothing that can be done that he's gonna lose no matter what that you know, he just needs to kind of sit back and protect himself in his little castle. But that, you know, he, he, it's the depression that comes upon him. Theoden is, is, a, is a shell of his former self. And I think anyone who's suffered from depression or knows people who have suffered from depression sees that he's not interested in anything anymore. He's not showing affection to his loved ones. He's not leading his people anymore. He's sitting on his throne and like, his nephew has to go around basically leading the troops and trying to fight off and protect the, the people because he's not doing his job anymore. He, he's emptied of that. So I agree. I think that can happen in leadership all the time where suddenly you become indecisive and fearful and that can lead to depression. I, I've heard of, uh, of leaders of countries who, when things didn't necessarily go the way they had hoped, they, they go into like dark moods and, and the staff will just be sitting around being like, when are they going to come out? We need decisions made. Like that's the job of a leader is to make decisions. You're you're completely right. It's when you're facing a, so much advice that it just paralyzes you. That's awful. And also, if you're allowing your mood, you're not a leader anymore. You've you've failed in your duty because you're allowing your own personal issues, whether it's figuring out which advice to take, feeling indecisive. Like your job is to be decisive as a leader. Yes, you got to take advice from people, but you have to be the one leading them. And he's and he's not leading them in this in this movie at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, but it's not a naive decisiveness, right? It's a decisiveness that has come from the fact that you have cultivated years and years and years of your life to knowing what your values are, where your morals are, where your ethics are at, what you care about, what you're trying to do, where your vision is, and... Theoden has none of that when Grima's around. And when Gandalf comes and is able to electrically shock and like basically shock him back into his own mind, it's so crucial, right? So again, it's no accident that it's Gandalf. If you <laughs> look at Gandalf as advisor versus Grima as advisor, right? Gandalf Grima's just trying to take you he's just whispering like and and filling him with doubt and fear and yeah and when gandalf comes he's giving him let's say advice or a command but in a way that is forthright 
caring but not sugarcoated. And it reminded me of a great line that, again, Ralph Waldo Emerson has where he says, part of the job of being a good friend to someone is putting them in touch with their own reason with electric shocks. Oh, with electric shocks. Yeah, electric, yeah. not literally electric well, shocks, yeah, but, but like no. using using hard truth yeah, to like put your friend hard back love. In, is, is that what they call back it? in touch with their own reason? Right. Yeah. And Gandalf does that. He's putting Theoden back in touch with his own reason, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from putting him back in touch with his own mind. There's a there's another maybe softer quote that I like, but there's the same concept, which is your friends, your true friend sings the song of your heart when you've forgotten it, right? And 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 Theoden's forgotten what he cares about, what he values, what he's all about, and in walks old friend Gandalf and says, basically, arise, get up, be done with these lesser things. This fear is not who you are. And actually, it's really fear at the heart of it. It seems that is broken. Theoden. Uh, it's also what, in a sense, broke Soromon in a different way, right? Soromon was broken morally by fear, and Theoden was broken almost physically, mentally for sure. So, yeah, Soromon's character was broken by fear of Sauron, and Theoden's mental health basically was broken by fear. Yeah, but he was able to come back. Yeah, right? exactly. That's a really interesting contrast between Theoden and then Denethor from Gondor, the guy who's Boromir and Faramir's father, because Denethor doesn't. And he's not, at least aesthetically, he's not as far gone as Theoden was, but he couldn't come back. He still just kind of stayed in the depression or the sadness or the lifelessness, right? Whereas Theoden, through... Some and that's just such a cool comparison. I've heard it said that that people kind of have uh, two reactions to the world. You're either suicidal or homicidal. Uh, some people, when when they're confronted by fear, <laughs> one or the other, hey, yeah, <laughs> or overwhelmed or something, right? They'll they'll close in on themselves and they'll start beating themselves up. Whereas you know the homicidal one will go out and like be mean to others and take out their anger on other people. And uh, internalized versus externalized. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, I th- see these two characters. We see Theoden, and he's going the suicidal route. He's he's melting into his depression. And when it comes to Denethor, more obviously the homicidal side, where he just wants to do violence on the world. Yeah, he's he's just angry at the world and is spiteful and wants to burn it down exactly. But anyway exactly well we'll get to that next time <laughs> we want to we want to have something to talk about in return of the king that brings the listeners back <laughs> again I, and i think tolkien somehow in a fantasy novel he manages to somehow nail greatly true human characteristics now obviously theoden is a man so he's a human but how he's got that line where was Gondor? So even when he's back in his own mind, he's still just a man with all of the frailties that come with that. And he's, A, Rohan needs that alliance, obviously, right? Like, where the hell is Gondor? But yeah. but he also kind of is in a moment where there's just so much darkness coming into the world. He's still feeling that pettiness, right? He's still feeling that, well, come on, Gondor, like... <laughs> Where where are you? We need your help. And where were they, right? And 
like it's in a moment where you hope he would be able to rise above that. And so, again, this is such great, such a great character that Tolkien could make where it's a person who is able to like to get in touch with the vitality of their own mind. And yet that's still flawed. Yeah. It's still it's it's great, but it's not perfect. And he kind of does that with all of his characters. Exactly. But it's so it's cool because that's what kind of keeps them interesting and striving not stagnant and we talked about earlier with sam thaden's got that he still has his pride a little bit right like he's still a little bit proud where he like he's got myopia in his own blind spots when he talks about helms deep it's like it's, yeah, no one's ever taken no helms one's ever deep. taken like there's a pride there right it was like well yeah i'm like yeah okay well you've never <laughs> you never faced an enemy quite this like, powerful like, before. Have you ever had 10,000 orcs marching from You're Isengard? A You're a guy. <laughs> the orcs are marching to Isengard. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, no, sorry. It's the hobbits are going to Isengard. No, that probably hasn't happened, right? But what I do love about Thaden is how he um, relates to Eowyn, his niece, right? Who is probably... I think maybe the strongest character in this movie in in this specific in the two towers I think cover to cover Sam is the best character in Lord of the Rings but in two towers I every time I watch two towers I am captivated by Eowyn but with Theoden when he says you lead the people he knows that leadership uh doesn't have a gender <laughs> right true true you know he's He's tired, but he still trusts the right person. And when you emphasize character, one of the things that to me is part of the deeply ethical nature of determining character over anything else is that it doesn't matter things like gender or race or orientation, right? Or or strength or weakness. You can you can be or sickness or health. You can have character in any circumstance, uh, whether you're in you know, the gulag and just trying to survive and, and help people around you or you're a king or a you know titan of industry. Character is what's going to actually save your value. And Theoden seizes this in Eowyn, right? And so you lead the people when they're, I think it's when they're marching to Helm's Deep. Like what, a, I don't know. The more I think about it, the more dynamic I see Theoden as a character. Because obviously, like, Eowyn is so obviously the strongest person in Rohan, right? Other than maybe um, Eomer, her brother. But but she, her strength is even more impressive because she's not out there being macho. She's lit- She's got the character to also stick around with Theoden. Yeah, right? well, and like, sure, maybe Eomer's out there dealing with orcs and wargs and whatever, but Eowyn has to deal with Grima. <laughs> and that slimy fuck... And, and is the Thea- worst. <laughs> and Theoden just giving up on life, watching someone she loves and admires just be like, uh, whatever. It takes strength to stick around with someone and love them through that and then see them come out the other side and not just say, you were awful. How could you possibly have done that to me? Yeah, and she's so loyal and sad and just heartbroken with what Theoden has become because she remembers his real vitality and she knows what the problem is. It's Grima, right? Well, let's say Saruman, Sauron more broadly, but Grima is bringing manifestation to this in the court at Rohan. And she is like, 
holy cow this guy is such a creep and he even like want like he wants her right like there's yeah i forgot that's yeah that is a really creepy there part. is no depth to grima Wormtongue's depravity hey where he will spend countless hours poisoning theoden's mind against people like aowen and then again just like a sniveling little bitch all he wants to do is sleep with her and i think that's actually a theme in tolkien's work is like he's so good at at showing the different forms of evil right you have the uh the evil of sauron and it's powerful and it's kind of almost all seeing and it's how we sometimes feel about like the suffering and, and evil of the universe it just seems so overpowering but then you also have the people who just have succumbed to the evil and they're kind of pathetic and slimy and and they're trying to use things like but powerful in a really dark way because their power is manipulation yes like exactly. using other people against each other and themselves and like somehow these people weasel their way into other people's lives and then do use, I guess, powerful or strong people to get what they want. And it, it's gross. Grima Wormtongue is both Iago from Othello, the the liar, right? right? Yeah. He's yep. the liar, which causes chaos. But he's also, he, he makes me think. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> he makes me think a little bit of like, let's say these modern day incels. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. actually, I like that. Who think that they are owed something yeah. just for the sake of existing. Grima almost thinks that because he's, even though what he's good at is so terrible, because he's so good at it, he deserves something, right? The yeah. something being Eowyn, right? Which he doesn't deserve at all because he's, anyway, yeah. And she has to deal with him. And in a way, at least for a little while, kind of put up with him. And I, it, it really made me sympathetic to, like, obviously, I don't know anything about this, but sympathetic to the idea, like, women have to probably put up with a lot of creepy people in their life. It's true. You know? It's true, yeah. Maybe not to the extent exactly of Grima, but Eowyn got a lot of unwanted attention. But I think another reason why I love Eowyn is that she doesn't just... Um, let it happen to her right like she's an agent in her own life where she basically says no fuck you get out of my face you know like i and i like that idea like of okay yeah he's a creep but you have your own autonomy like that to me that's a very i have to say like that's my kind of view of a, a really solid sense of an empowerment for a woman to be like get the fuck out of here you creep i don't want you around and if you try anything i will rip your hair out and and she in that sense is uh it's she's a powerful woman right like she can fight back against him totally and she, obviously against grima he's not physically imposing so i'm not like i'm i understand not every situation that can be like a, a viable option let's say for safety but i think Maybe in many social situations, I would love to see a woman just <laughs> ream out a guy like that who's creeping on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. <laughs> and so, so, so with Aowen herself, right? right? Yes. Like Aowen, she's kind and caring, as we see with how she still cares about Theoden, right? But she's brave and she's sweet and she's strong. And so I made a little note here about like Lord of, Lord of the Rings has 
all these women that I would want to marry <laughs> or be in love with in my life, you know? At, le- at least two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least two so far. Arwen and Are they Aowen. the only two women in, in Lord of the Rings? Well, Galadriel. Right, yeah. And um, I don't know. Maybe there's... There's there's not very many. Um, I think there's... Well, a... other than like all the townspeople, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like main characters, I guess it is Arwen, Eowyn, and... Galadriel, yeah. yeah, but quality, if not <laughs> quantity, right? Like yeah, all three yeah. of those characters are incredible. And then just I have one last little thought of Aowen for Two Towers, and that's um, kind of her flirtatious nature, both ways with her and Aragorn, right? <laughs> yeah, Aragorn is a is a weird character in terms of love because he seems really, really committed to Arwen, but but there seems to be an interest, I guess, in Eowyn. Well, who who wouldn't be? Like, <laughs> yeah, right? I often, I remember when I was young, you know, without any relationship experience, I, I thought it was so odd that he wouldn't pick her because she just seemed like the better character, at least in my mind. Like, Yeah, well, we aren't given the same kind of back and forth yeah, with Aragorn yeah. and Arwen as we are with Eowyn and Aragorn, right? So we, we see it. That itself could be a good thought and how... There's so much in other people's relationships we don't see. So it's like, why does well, why is she with him? Why does he like her? That kind of la da 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 da. But you know, <laughs> we are only seeing three to five percent of people's lives together. Maybe. Yeah, that'd be a lot for for most people. Uh, and I agree. We don't know the backstory. We just know that there's apparently a really deep love there and a deep commitment. Uh, and it, obviously, Eowyn doesn't really know that either. She just yeah. sees this guy who comes in and. He's hot stuff. He's, you know, a king maybe. She knows there's some other lady in the picture though. True, true. Who, who gave you that necklace? <laughs> or whatever she says. So, but right? you know, she's still making her play. True, yeah. But it made me think of something that I don't know. I don't know if I've ever heard this question asked or even answered, uh, let alone answered, right? And so the question I thought is... um, this is like maybe one of life's not yet so well explored problems is what happens when you have two people in your life contemporarily who are both so worth loving, right? In a like, romantic way. In a romantic way, yeah. yeah. Like both Arwen and Eowyn are awesome. Not just, they're not just cool, though they are that, but like they're people of character and deep character and they're, con- they're they're both so kind and courageous and forthright and sweet and vulnerable a little bit too which is to me a great character attribute for someone who is so strong is to be a little bit vulnerable with others so they're both <laughs> you know obviously they're both catches <laughs> but they're both more than that like they're both like life partners or they would be what i would want right but there's two of them like what <laughs> what's aragorn what's poor aragorn to do with two people worth loving who both seem interested in him and i guess in 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 that context in the story context obviously he's already made a commitment to one so he makes that decision but uh, but if say you haven't let's let's build this out a little further say you haven't made a commitment to one and you're and you're trying to decide and an interesting thing that i'd point out is Aragorn's also the kind of guy who's 
created in himself the character to attract two women like that. It's not just, you know, some two women are interested in him. Two women of character are interested in him. And why are they interested in him? Because he's a man of character. Yes, he, he absolutely is that. But I still, like, I don't know. This is something that kind of blows my mind a little bit because obviously we are species that pair bonds to an extent more than many other species. It's not a hundred percent flush, but it's very strong. I don't know. Like I, (laughs) I have no real thing to say other than I wonder what that would ever be like. (laughs) I I can't imagine I'll ever be in a situation to have two whole human females (laughs) interested in me (laughs) at the same time. Oh man. And if you ever did hit that position, what do you do, right? Uh, I think I think he does make the right decision, though, in, in the sense that, or just in the narrative context, you have to stick with the one you're with, right? Uh, there's a certain commitment that you have to have once you've made it. Otherwise, are you a person of character if you're not? Well, if Aragorn wanted, and he would have done this, I'm positive, but if he had somehow in some way decided that Eowyn was the one, I think he would have gone and told Arwen that first and given her back her necklace. Yeah, that that's... Right? And maybe he kind of wanted her to go... That's the other thing. It wasn't the best thing for her to stay with him because she was giving up her morta- immortality to stick with him. And, and he wasn't sure that he wanted her to do that. Yeah, that added an extra layer of uncertainty for Aragorn, didn't it? Well, so, so yeah, what if you're presented with a choice in which... Maybe you care about one more, but in caring for them, you're kind of destroying them. I mean, that's what Elrond in this in the movie The Two Towers is basically saying to her. He's saying, why would you give that up? Let him marry a human. So that that adds all this more tension to this decision that, that Aragorn has to make. That there's a human there so worth marrying. Exactly. Right? It's not like... That, that she's not some schlub. interested in him, too. <laughs> right? She's, she's deeply ethical, Eowyn is, and I just was like curious a little bit about like man what a weird position that would be for aragorn and like a little bit aon too because she's having conflicting feelings because she obviously likes him but doesn't want to get in to anyone's business where she's not wanted let's say right uh so i just was hmm interesting times for aragorn <laughs> no make, doubt he's to, he's got some decisions to make to make his deci- yeah exactly <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know like do you just i guess in if you have two people that are worthy of your love let's say i guess you just pick one yeah i mean like i've often heard it said and it's almost become a cliche but i think it's true love is a choice right it's saying i'm gonna stick with this person because no matter who they are no matter how much you love them there's gonna come a day when you're gonna you're gonna know all of their shit, like you know everything about them that isn't lovable. Yeah, but that's the hard part. Yeah, for yeah. this because they're both good choices. Yeah, right. No, but I mean, it's it's when the you got to make the choice. I guess. Yeah, I agree. Uh, There's not much more to be said. Maybe about that, this is why we're starting to see a bit of a rise of polyamory. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo! I mean, in, in our culture, a, people rejecting the idea that you have to make a choice, right? That you, that you can love more than one person, and or you could have a primary partner, but 
um, you both are free to. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, okay, let's imagine Arwen and Aragorn are polyamorous. <laughs> uh, Probably not Tolkien's and then ideal. Aragorn, Aragorn rides up into Rohan and is like, oh, jackpot. <laughs> this is <a> big money. <laughs> It would make for a very different tale, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that uh, parody on the internet somewhere, I, I think. Actually, there are more modern fantasy novels that do explore that a lot more. Like, in this particular one, obviously, Tolkien has certain religious views uh, that I think he wouldn't really stray from in, in a hero character. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. I can't believe I've gone... <laughs> You've gone three hours into a Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and you haven't made that haven't pun. Made that joke yet. <laughs> Don't worry. There's more to come. Uh, so also, a character that really impacted me both in the book and in the movie when I watched it is uh, Faramir, or Faramir, uh, Boromir's younger brother, right? You no, know? and it's actually really interesting how, uh, how different the characters are in the movie and the book. The the movie uh, character Faramir being different from the book to the movie. Yeah, in the in the movie he never ever even thinks about taking the ring, and he, he or sorry in the book he never even thinks about taking the ring. He just supports Frodo the whole way through, helps him get to where he needs to go. Just a completely noble character. But in the movie, I and I think this was the right choice by Peter Jackson. They make him a little bit more flawed. Yeah, they do. They very intelligently set him up as. Oh, oh, here we go. Boromir 2.0, right? He's got a line where he says, the ring of power within my grasp when he finds out that Frodo, that's the ring Frodo has. Uh, You know, it's the perennial temptation of man. (laughs) Like It's the recurring, never-ending, time is a flat circle type of recurrence of this temptation. Um, And it's like, well, maybe, maybe like that is a element of human nature that's impossible to totally suppress or get rid of you know but i also think acknowledging it is what allows you to kind of get the better of it we kind of have like all great literature has is uh layered right so the ring is obviously a layered concept and faramir's relation faramir and boromir's relationship with the ring is layered it's like we've discussed the ring as temptation the ring as addiction uh the ring as power which is obviously the more ham-fisted but but very clear purpose of the ring and that temptation it's interesting because the temptation for faramir potentially is more intense than the temptation for boromir he actually has the ability to take the ring he could he could take the ring from frodo uh, he's got him basically captured. He's like under his influence. He's got men all around him. There's there's no Aragorn or anyone to protect Frodo in this instance. Sam can't help, and Faramir decides he's taken he's taken Frodo back to Gondor. But again, of course, Sam does help. Yes, of course, <laughs> right? And <laughs> uh, uh, Sam, you want you want a bet that'll pan out every time. Sam will help. Yeah, I'll check that box, right? Because Sam does tell Faramir um, about Boromir, right? He tells him that this is what destroyed Boromir or, like, led to his downfall. And so, like you said, the difference in the movie that I think is so smart is to make Faramir originally extremely interested in taking the ring and, like, basically becoming Boromir again. Oh, my gosh, we've seen this movie and it ends poorly every time, right? Except 
Faramir, <laughs> what? Rewrites the script. Once he learns about what happens to Boromir and he hears Sam's story, he says, oh, okay. Well, even though everything inside of me, all of the, like the deeply flawed human parts of me say, take it, take it, take it, right? Like imagine Palpatine. Yeah. <laughs> Palpatine's like, let the do anger it. flow do through it. you. Do it. You know, there's that Palpatinian or like Darth Sidious part in, in the brain that says, take it, you know, take it. Like that, the thing that just probably speaks at a deep level in most people if they were to be totally honest about like an ugly impulse that everyone has right most people have i would say but faramir is able to and this is probably my favorite part of favorite thought i got from watching two towers again was that to me because of Faramir being able to hear Sam's story and think about what happens to Boromir, he actually represents the the person who can learn from history so that he doesn't repeat it. Like, how rare of a gem is that? Like, he hears about his brother, right? And he lets the hobbits go on their way after that really deep desire to take it. So, like, he lets logic and thinking overpower his desire. So Boromir being such a costly lesson actually becomes worth it for his brother because he wouldn't without that Boromir example let's say never let a, a, a good fallen character go to waste without the fall of Boromir let's say we can't have the rise of Faramir uh, we can't have that learning right we can't have someone studying a book and saying oh man you know what I would love to do this thing because my natural animal human instinct wants it, but it doesn't work out, you know? It yeah, it's, just it's, doesn't work out. It's like you said. How, I'm not going to do it because of that. How rare is the person who learns from the past? Uh, and, I mean, it, there's that old cliche, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And you're, and you're right. If Sam hadn't said, hey, you know what happened to your brother? Probably Faramir would have just kept going. But, but he had the wisdom... In, Faramir had the wisdom and character to realize, oh, this doesn't end well. It's such a testament, I feel, to the human ability, let's say, to somehow, like, somehow we do have this tiny little part of our brains that can, like, the, the prefrontal cortex, like, that tiny little part can sometimes, every now and again, overcome all of the rest of it, all the reptilian and mammalian parts of our brain that are just screaming for pleasure or something hedonistic or something short-term or something self-glorifying all of these things being the ring for faramir and yet he can hear sam's story and he can be like okay i can't do that because of like we said in the last episode like maybe this is gandalf and galadriel Right, this is Faramir becoming that in and he and and like Faramir as a character is interesting, like he's good, he plays a good role, but I think as a symbol for learning from the past, even though every all the temptations right in front of you and all you want to do is take it, he kind of sees like, look, yeah, I guess I probably will become sick, like Boromir did. And so 
I don't want that. You can go. It's uh, It goes back to actually a theme that seems to be appearing in po- popular culture, but it's the idea of sacrificing the present for the sake of the future, understanding that consequences come when you when you just live for the now. That, that one of the greatest things that humanity's ever learned is that sometimes you have to sacrifice the now for the future. But the only way we can know what things need to be sacrificed is actually from the wisdom of the past. It's, it's the great authors, it's the philosophers, the theologians, the people who have thought through these questions and said, you know, to live the best life, you need to have character. You need to give up certain things. You can't live just in the present for your for your emotional pleasure, for your physical pleasure, because that has consequences, and those consequences are probably more severe than you think they are. Mm-hmm. But I think also what I find so amazing about Fermer is that he's able to somehow make the right decision without having gone through the negative consequences himself to learn that. Yes. Right? Yeah. He gets it secondhand like he hears about something that happens to someone else and he learns what not to do without having to pay the cost of what boromir had to pay which was his own life to me this is maybe one of the most understated things about humans that i am so enraptured with is this idea that we seem to be one of the only species, maybe the only one that can share information that's so complicated, like such complicated information with other members of our species that they can chart a course. They can, they can learn the lessons without having to go through them. And not just on an instinctual level, right? Exactly. Like there are lots of animals. On a that cognitive can, level. Yeah. On a, I'm just going to understand this without, doing it Mm -hmm. it's so i mean you could make it like back in the day when people were first sailing ships let's say someone (laughs) wrecks their ship survives writes a little thing like don't sail here (laughs) there are rocks here someone now next sailor 10 years later oh there are rocks here i'm gonna avoid that spot they they get the benefit without having to go through the trial now, maybe the, the, obviously they have lots of other trials, but there's like a growth there. there there's a building up. There's a accumulation of knowledge about how to better navigate. <laughs> Don't mind the pun there. Through the world that if people can pay sufficient attention to the great work of people who've come before them, they can make less mistakes or put themselves in less holes than they might otherwise. And to me, like Faramir is so representing that in his ability, especially his desire is so to take the ring when he just says, you know what, I'm going to learn from my brother and not have to go through the pain he did. Yeah, and really isn't that the story of civilization itself is is we learned things from our ancestors that have allowed us to not make the same mistakes that they did. And hopefully we'll continue to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was like, this is a bit of a digression, but I was, uh, I had to get my car towed today and I was blown away just watching the tow truck work. Like something so simple as a tow truck where this other machine <laughs> can take my machine and m- my machine that isn't working and put it in such an angle that it can move around with 
hydraulics, which I don't know how those works, feats of engineering that I have no idea, and yet uh, here I am reaping all of these benefits um, for, like, you know, cosmic sense, a paltry cost, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, like and, and All of the things that people have built up to make it relatively easy for me to get my car from one end of the city to another when it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it... It's magic. I mean, what, what, I forget the who said it, but far enough advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I think so many things, when you really think about them, are magical. And that's all the result of just humans accumulating knowledge and learning from one another. And at the tip of that spear is the ability to learn how to not die. Yeah, right. which is fundamentally what Faramir learns from Boromir. Okay, I want the ring, but I also don't want to die, <laughs> and I want I want to not die more than I want the ring of power. And I was like, okay, cool, like learn from history, because that's the difference between Faramir and Boromir. Very good point. Tell me what you think. About the Ents. Ah, the Ents. There's a certain kind of English literature and a, a generation of authors, uh, and I would put Brian McDonald and Chesterton and Tolkien and Lewis in this category, but, but there's Amer- American authors that do this as well. The love of nature, and it is a, a pure and undying love that they that they express in their literature you look at this in c.s lewis's narnia he loves nature uh tolkien loves nature these men went on walks all the time around oxford like they appreciate the purity of nature too and in a lot of ways tolkien's world the the worst thing about the orcs and the urukai and this is so well done in the movie too is what they do to the natural world like you can hear the trees groan even in fellowship not even two towers like you just like you feel the living things that these trees are that are getting destroyed and burnt you just feel a violation of something pure by something evil and kind of corrupted and the ents to me kind of represent nature fighting back um fighting back against this corruption and evil but also there is a sadness about them and an ancient an ancient kind of our time is past. We're no longer uh, the the same power as we were and, and maybe we just need to fade into the darkness. And there's this idea that no, they don't need to fade into the darkness. They need to fight. And and I love how Mary and Pippin are just so appalled by how slow they take and and the the <laughs> the seeming complete inefficiency of what they're doing. And that's, you can even think about that as a misunderstanding of culture on the part of the hobbits. They don't understand the importance of what the Ents are doing. But for me, for me, the Ents represent an old, ancient goodness that's being rejected by a, a culture, let's say, that's fully committed to nothing but efficiency and brutality and power. <laughs> it, it's a little bit it messes with my brain a bit to think of 
Saruman and the orcs as a culture. <laughs> right, right. But I yeah. take your point. I know what you mean. <laughs> you know, not, not even, or maybe a ethos or a, a, a worldview. Right. Yeah, well, I think, well, the orcs' worldview is destruction. Right. Yeah. So it's and, and barely a worldview. But I, again, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, yeah. they're basically poison. Mm-hmm. The orcs are poison, and the forest and the ants are life. So they're clearly at odds with each other. But also the 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 beauty of what I think Tolkien has done with the ants is is making them so powerful. There's a an old ancient strength that's in them that I mean, I've used this phrase all the time, I'm sure many have. The ants are going to war. <laughs> when Mary and Pippin get them to come out and see the level of destruction when you rise up that that primordial anger in uh, the old good things and they finally go to war they're incredibly powerful it just they're took a long time to rouse took a long them. time to rouse them and in a more cultural sense i'm kind of reminded of um pearl harbor when the admiral of the fleet the japanese fleet says i fear we've wakened a sleeping giant and you see this all all throughout history is um, there's also great moments in literature where, you know, what does a wise man fear? Uh, a good man's anger. Like when when good, solid, old strength gets angry, it is a, it is a powerful force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just as another aside, I, I checked out, I think last time I mentioned that Tolkien was inspired to write Lord of the Rings from what he saw from World War One, but... I also have more recently since then checked <laughs> on Wikipedia. It's just uh, so easy to look. I could have probably done that before. Uh, that I think Lord of the Rings was written in the 50s. So I don't know. Like it probably, well, definitely it's influenced by both wars because there are things that strike me as even World War II ish about some of the things that happen in Lord of the Rings. But. That's interesting about the ants being this kind of slumbering goodness that once awoken uh, brings destruction because they are the ones who destroy. But also protection. Isengard. Yeah, protection, well, protection, right? yeah. yeah. Well, they protect the good from the evil by yeah. just like destroying Isengard. I think, interestingly enough, like I actually have a slightly less shiny or glowing uh, look at the ants just because my thought about them when I was taking notes on this was they seem to me a little bit like Switzerland. <laughs> Not and, really willing to get involved. Well, they have a tree beard has a line where um, we are on no one's side because no one is on our side. And this is obviously, uh, okay. So one of the great things about the two towers book and movie is the scenes with Mary Pippin and Treebeard, right? In the book, it was palpable, the sense of just frustration and, like, incomprehension that the hobbits were having with the Ents, just how long it took to even decide that they were, what were they, that they weren't orcs? And, and, <laughs> Which <yeah>. is what <laughs> Mary and Pippin had been telling them the whole time. <laughs> and, and just how long it takes for them to say anything in Entish. It takes a very long time to say anything in Entish. <laughs> so when I think about that as the answer, I'm like, okay, well, they're not 
bad. Like that's clearly not at all my thought, but like I did think again of a, a really great one of my, uh, as you probably can tell by this point, one of my intellectual heroes is Emerson, and he writes, "To have a friend, you must be a friend." And the ants, through whatever has happened, I guess I don't really know the history of the ants, but they don't really see a need to initiate friendship with any outside group. So I guess they're like people who, if we were to think of them as people, they're people who, they don't initiate kindness, but they're not allergic to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I know what you mean. And I think... Are they just too jaded? Like, am I just being I think too they cynical are... about them? <laughs> I think maybe you are. I mean, you're right. I do have a very noble view of the ends. But I think it's because I really like old things. Like, I like ancient ideas and ancient things. And I, I see a value... Like harems? <laughs> well, we were just talking about polyamory, so... <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> no. I don't think No, I don't. I don't. Hundreds I don't, of women <laughs> kind of... The... I don't, I don't you don't like need me Arabs. to tell you about that. <laughs> what I'm saying, though, is that I like the idea, and this is an idea I've always loved in literature and stories, right, is this idea of the goodness of old things. And, and Tolkien, there's such a sadness in his writing about the death of old things, about the elves leaving, this, which is happening in this movie, right? The elves are, are going to the white ships and they're leaving Middle-earth. The Ents are saying our time has passed. The elves again say the time of men has begun. At the end of the day, there is a sadness to the to the passing of things. Think about this. This nostalgia would be a good example. So uh, when I was growing up, uh, outside of my window, there was this forest that was in this field. And I loved looking at it. And then, you know, it got cut down to for more pasture land. Now, that forest hadn't originally been there because the, where we're, I'm from on the prairies, there weren't a lot of trees. So it's not like the natural reality of that landscape had been destroyed. But the nostalgia that I had missing that forest was very real. And I think one of the greatest things that Tolkien captures is that sense of human nostalgia for the past. And he captures that with Tom Bombadil in the book, but he also captures it really well with the ants because they're saying where where have the lady ants gone we lost them <laughs> like they, something happened to them now we find out later in Tolkien's work that they're the trolls like they were corrupted by Sauron but there's something so sad about them and maybe I'm just a melancholy person at times but I love that sadness that is in them and I, I just see it as there's a nobility to it Okay, so I'm starting to think here maybe we're, we should make a distinction between ants not being attacked or ants in a world when there aren't orcs <laughs> destroying everything. Yes, Ants yes. in a world where there are orcs <laughs> no, destroying true, everything. true, true, true. Because, yes, I, I, I think I totally feel an affinity for, I guess, the kind of melancholy you're mentioning about those the groaning of the ants as they make their way like that does encapsulate some sort of burden of living i and i i do i get that the old burden of carrying on something that is maybe wearing you out a little bit but you still know is in you and it needs to be but i i just i'm still thinking like 
Mary especially, like Pippin too, but Mary is really grilling them and like pushing them and pushing them. Like, what are you waiting for? What? Like, this is imminent. <laughs> like these people, he's got a line. Our friends are out there and they need our help. Like there is a immediacy that Mary is trying to get across. He he needs their help, right? Mary needs the Ents' help. So does everyone. And they are just a little bit too maybe part of that oldness the, maybe the shadow side of the oldness is the inability to see how quickly danger can move right or happen well this goes back to what you were saying in the first episode about hobbits right their ignorance in the case of the hobbits their ignorance of how the world worked was actually a danger and it was Frodo's ability to understand that danger existed and the significance of that danger that pushed him to be able to save them. And the same way now Mary and Pippin are saying, there's danger out there. There's an evil and it's coming for you, whether you do anything about it or not. I mean, again, another wonderful old quote, all evil needs to prosper is for good men to do nothing. And the Ents decide to do nothing. Yeah. Well, it's not their war, right? Even with Mary's beseeching. Enthusiastically beseeching. <laughs> yes. They they can't be argued into it. And, I mean, in this situation, if Mary can't do it, I don't know who can. They need their help. Like, if it's if you can't respond to that, you know. So Mary has to, of course, make the <laughs> clever executive decision. Or was it Pippin? I think it was Mary who says to walk by the South to drop them off. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's Pippin actually, actually or maybe it's, it's one of them is being cheeky and smart about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I made a little note, like evil doesn't stop at borders. Right. Yeah. And I think this is an important point. A lot of time people will believe in things, but they won't do anything to change that because you know, it's uncomfortable. Or maybe well, it's the goes... ants don't want to change anything until it's actually affecting them. And the thing is, we all have to remember everything is connected, and evil against one person is kind of evil against all of us. And if we're if we don't stop it somewhere, what you know, they came for the Jews, and I didn't say anything. They came for the gypsy, I didn't say anything, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to defend me. Yeah, like and the ants, they're coming for the ants. They're yeah. destroying their forests. Whereas Mary, at least in those scenes, like, yeah, he's saying our friends need our help. But Mary has now, at this point in the story, been exposed to enough of the evil where he knows that it's it doesn't stop. Like, like I said, it doesn't stop at borders, right? So I think one of the things that <laughs> maybe this just shows my, like, natural bias, but I was so attracted to the way um, Mary was kind of like a universalist here. He's like, I even made a note like, man, I wish Mary would come live on earth. <laughs> Cause if you really like care about goodness and helping, you have to care about it everywhere. Right. I mean, you, you act as one person. You can't affect the whole world at any given moment. You act with what you can do. Right. But like for me, I get just as sad, I guess, about a terrible atrocity in 
like just recently there was uh that attack in sri lanka and uh that made me just as sad as stories i hear about tragedies in canada you know i mean i think again i have like natural psychological tendencies to maybe have more of a reaction to stories about things that happen more locally to me because I, I don't think people can help but like have a more visceral reaction to their more local scenario but a it puts into perspective how I'm not generally walking around to the streets of Calgary feeling like man I'd really love to go into that cafe but maybe it'll be bombed yeah <laughs> right? and it's like you you said earlier like we should care about all the suffering and pain in the world, but we should only we should always act to reduce whatever we can that we see. And in the case with Mary here, so he's tried the argument side and and, and that's failed. But but you know, craftiness can be good. Craftiness can be used for good. How is he crafty here? He he says, Well, let's go walk, you know, on the south. He he shows the ends, the consequences of not acting by acting himself well they're how their inaction is going to be their own destruction yes right yes uh, i mean again like that is pulling at a, a a deeper fear so it's maybe not the most noble but like the ants seeing their forest getting destroyed or at least other trees and them realizing oh man okay well we we're in this now because it's come to our border the ants are going to war the ants are going to war and so, yes, ants in general are super interesting and a cool idea. I, I think ants, just on a on a on a more uh, literary criticism, I guess, style of of thinking, they're just such a beautiful concept, and it just goes to show what an amazing world builder Tolkien was. Yeah, that, that he could create such complex cultures and societies. Yes, I was also obsessed with their language and all this kind of stuff. But like, I just I love that he introduces this and then teaches us a lesson with them too. He's so good at weaving narrative through world building. There's lots of good world builders. There's lots of good narrative writers. I think Tolkien, as the father of fantasy, is probably the best at both of those two things, or at least the father of both those things. Yeah. Well, perhaps. Our time to talk about the tree people has come to an end. <laughs> right? You never cease to amaze me with these. I'm barking up the wrong tree beard. Oh, oh no. Stop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just a couple of things, a couple other things I wanted to ask you about or talk to you about. So, I have been really intrigued in Lord of the Rings with the relationship between. Uh, the men and the elves, because they strike me as the two strongest, for lack of a better term, good races. Um, they seem to have the most strength of warriors and uh, presence, and yet there is a very palpable tension between the elves and the, and the humans, right? All the way back to the original battle, where a sealder is able to cut off uh, Sauron's finger and take the ring and this tension is kind of like highlighted I think by Elrond and his 
I don't know. What would, what, what would even be the adjective you would use for Elrond's opinion of Aragorn? Like, he doesn't... Dismissive? Yeah, but he doesn't... Like, so he doesn't disrespect him. He thinks he's, like, a good man. Well, I think... I but think but to... even to call him a good man doesn't... A good man. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> rise to the level of something still worthwhile. Yeah, I think, like, I guess on a world-building side of things, if you're an elf... A human is kind of like how we would view an animal. Uh, and some animals are good and some animals are bad. Uh, we're, none of us are really huge fans of snakes necessarily. Well, some people are. But but like an animal you need if but the a orcs dog, But a dog, right? Like you really like your dog. Your dog lives, you know, maybe a, a seventh of your life. Yeah, but, but do the elves really like people? Well, some of them, right? They keep old Aragorn around, sort of. Um, but they're just... They're such fleeting lives, right? And and if you're an immortal and you got these little mortals running around, like you're just gonna view them differently, I guess, uh, from that perspective. But if we're thinking on it at more of a of a symbolic level, it it just seems that the elves are are so much superior in in uh, culture and all these things to humans, and it's almost as if how could they be friends with these these lower class individuals? I guess is is how they seem to be treating. The humans, from what I can tell. Yeah, and so, which is why the dichotomy between Elrond and Arwen, to me, is so interesting. Where Elrond, like, it's it's kind of like Elrond and Arwen are both telling the truth about humans, but they're just choosing which side to emphasize, right? Like, Elrond chooses to look at the darks, not the dark. Elrond chooses to look at the side of humans that is easily tempted easily swayed pathetic where's your fortitude you can't even destroy the ring of power when you have it here and you know what will happen like what the hell man that's Elrond's take right whereas arwen sees the courage and the heroism and the kind of vitality again and and the courage of mortality too right she Mm -hmm. sees that you know it's hard being mortal. Neither of them are wrong, exactly, because they both are noticing elements of humans. It's almost like the elves are kind of like angels, almost. They're not God, but they're not human. They're somewhere in between, and they're able to view the kind of vagaries of human life with a detached both cynicism and admiration. Yeah, and um, I think going deeper on that point... They kind of, and, and tying it back to a point you made earlier, the difference between how Elrond views humans and how Arwen views humans is kind of almost the difference between how Sam views Golem and Frodo views Golem, right? Because one is trying yeah. to see the Smeagol, and honestly, imagine you're Elrond. Like, probably you see Aragor- Aragorn, a descendant of Isildur. Yeah. Right? right. Yeah. <laughs> like, he knew his great-great-grandpa... Who failed. The son shall always pay for the sins of the father, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and now he knows this guy. And, you know, he probably thinks he's an all right guy, but he sees him as weak and fleeting and, and kind of pathetic. He sees humans as pathetic. So it's an interesting, there's a theme here, right? Is is that when when people are looking at weaker things or more pathetic things, let's say, do you look for the good in it or the bad in it? Yeah, like Elrond isn't a lost cause, let's say for humans but he's just so deeply cynical from what he's seen right and he he 
is like that's a hot well he's obviously very old <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> very very and, old <laughs> and let's say maybe more elderly <laughs> types are harder to shake of an opinion once it's formed right and arwen maybe being representative of younger maturity still like she still has such deep hope for men in the story right the the race of men gandalf even earlier i think in fellowship says there's hope in men um and again this makes elrond scoff so he must be so butthurt that his daughter loves a man (laughs) (laughs) yeah he doesn't seem to like it (laughs) at all uh but Er like arwen she says there is still hope and like again that's another perennial theme because if you don't have that i mean a new hope (laughs) right like it's the start of star wars it's the generative recurrence that allows for the courage to take the next step i mean that's kind of what sam was talking about earlier when he saved frodo from the witch king is this like oh really tiny but irresistibly strong sense of hope and that's what arwen still hasn't lost yet which it feels a little bit like elrond he doesn't have time for hope anymore. Well, I mean, really, the elves have, have given up. Not all the elves, but many of the elves have given up on Middle-earth. They don't have hope in it anymore. They're leaving. They're And you compare them to angels earlier. They kind of are. They're leaving to go to heaven. They're literally getting on ships to go be with the gods, like in the Middle-earth context, if you read the Cimmerillion. And Elrond's just like, yeah, there's no hope. But you're right, Sam's quote, there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. It's not just the world. There's good in people. And that's a theme too. Uh, sometimes pity, just staying the hand is, is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I really am so, again, like this is just such an incredible story because of how, I have this kind of complicated relationship with the elves because they seem ethereal and not really part of Middle Earth even because they're so able to leave it. And yet there's still some of them who want to fight for it, right? So I'm reminded a little bit, you know, the scene in when the elves come to Helm's Deep to yeah. to to join Theoden and Aragorn and everyone who's there to fight as the orcs come. Uh, I think it's Haldir. He's got a line where he says, um, long ago, there was an allegiance between men and elves, and we have come to honor that allegiance, right? And that kind of idea of like, whatever thing is happening now, there's actually something much deeper that runs through our veins, let's say, uh, that is maybe not able to be seen in any given moment. So it, it reminded me a little bit of the line, the witch in the wardrobe when there's like a chapter that says deep magic from the dawn of time. And then that's like how they're able to kill Aslan. And then a couple chapters later, there's another chapter that says even deeper magic from beyond, from before the dawn of yeah, time, yeah, which yeah. is, you know, Aslan's resurrection powers. And Again, this idea seems here is that like, okay, whatever fundamental disagreement men and elves have, or let's say 
men and angels or the angelic side of our nature, which maybe can be both cynical and hopeful because cynics are smart and we need intelligence. They just don't have the right orientation, I would say. When the elves come to Helm's Deep, they are able to go to something more fundamental than that fundamental, right? Like, I don't even know. I don't know a better way to put it other than the, the cynicism is is deep, but the alliance is deeper because it's from an earlier age, let's say. And really, when you think about the sacrifice that the elves are making by showing up there versus what, let's say, the men are uh, sacrificing, the elves are sacrificing immortality, and they don't have to. No, they they right? they're gonna leave. They they get on their ships and and Sauron can't get to where they're going. Like they would be safe. And instead, because of an ancient alliance, because of friendship between Haldir and Aragorn and others, he shows up and he's there. Yeah, and because they so easily could not, it it just was it made me think. Okay, pay attention to the people who are around when they don't need to be and would probably be easier them for them not to be and it's no skin off their teeth to not be around and yet they're around you know that's like a deep alliance that the elves are showing with yeah like you said so much on the line like they would they could so easily be benefited not showing up at helm's deep like what do they got to lose and yet that connection is still there and i i don't know like it it's redemptive to see that when it, it kind of feels like all the elves and the men have. So I've, I, like it just seems to me before that part, other than Arwen and a little bit Galadriel and now Haldir, the elves and the men's relationship has just been like, okay, we have a common enemy, so we'll tolerate each other. But that's like a negative way. Like it's, we have to go fight. But with them coming to Helm's Deep and helping, like, it's like, oh, maybe there is something, like, a a positive reason for our relationship that runs so deep that I can't even really explain it. But we we do need men somehow, like humans. We need humans because of that hopeful part that Arwen can see. And uh, And going back to your point about the people who are there where they don't need to be there... Like, look for those people in your life who, when you're down on your luck, or maybe you messed up, or things weren't going well, and it actually hurt them to still be associated with you, or to to back you, or to show up and help you, look for those people. Because those are your real friends. Those are the people that, that you want in your corner. Because, I mean, Fairweather friend, are they really a friend at all? I'm assuming you're being sincere, so I will answer. Not rhetorical. <laughs> I'm uh, not being rhetorical. No, David. <laughs> that sounds like a shitty friend. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so often I, I was reading this story about a basketball player. I can't remember his name. He made $110 million over the course of five years or something, and he had a whole entourage, and he took them everywhere on all these vacations, and they went to Vegas all the time. And he got through these however many years he played basketball making all this money, and he had nothing at the end to show for it. 
and those friends weren't around anymore. And those, but those aren't. Like the, he lost all his money. Well, yeah, he like he spent it okay. all and gambled it and invested it poorly. But like, and he talks about it, and he's he's doing well now. But those are fair weather friends. But it's the friend who shows up when you're in your darkest moments. Those are the people that you know you can trust because they're not there for themselves they're there for you and the elves were not at helm's deep for the elves no they were there for the deep alliance yeah i like that idea where if you really like can be at least a good observer of other people's motivations like what is someone getting out of talking to me right now right and i like to think for the most part of my life what people are getting out of talking to me is a like a kind of relative sense of joy and happiness of having a conversation with me as opposed to what I can do for them or what I can be for them, right? Or what kind of role I can play for them. And so I guess that would be like the people that even if they annoy me sometimes, I'd go to Helm's Deep for, right? Well, yeah, and I guess that's the point. And I mean, we live in a in an era now where it's like a little hokey uh, to talk about things like character or doing the right thing. And I and I get why because I think that that has been used by rigid and unthoughtful pseudo-ethical systems to maybe keep people in line. So it does feel a little old-timey to say good, evil, right, wrong. But <laughs> make character great again yeah, yes <laughs> that's, that's kind of my thought and actually i just recently re-remembered because i learned about it in university but i haven't thought about it in a long time is just very quickly this idea um max weber one of the original sociologists had these and he's german so that's why these words are german he had these two concepts one was called gemeinschaft and one was called gesellschaft or gesellschaft and they were two different ways of how humans interact with each other at a, at a social level. Gemeinschaft being kind of a much more intimate or in character-based. So we're talking about like a small, maybe like a tribe. Uh, the thing that maybe communes are trying to get back to with a more authentic interpersonal relationship style of social living where everyone you see every day is someone you know. Uh, and kind of like a lot of the benefits spiritually emotionally psychologically that you get from that as opposed to Gesellschaft, which is more everyday life especially in a city where you could go a whole day without seeing anyone you know but you still see lots of people but it's very you know standoffish it has to be because you know who the hell are all these people <laughs> yeah yeah right? and how it goes back to the Karas. Yeah, the Karas Gemeinschaft is this cool idea of, and I got it from working at a summer camp out in the forest last summer of just like, okay, we've got all these kids out there, but we've also got 20 staff and we're all so dependent on each other and working with each other and like really, like especially working all the time with kids and having all these chores to do. You see all of the things that people's characters, like that stuff comes out because you're around each other all the time you're not just around a couple hours at a desk and then have to go on to something else, right? And I found that so uplifting and so wonderful. And uh, again, it was just kind of cool to get reminded of that idea from Weber about 
oh yeah like character is cool <laughs> you know yeah. like, and, and i think it is maybe again like a bit of a silent desperation of i i feel it a bit in my culture i think people are lonely too because of what you described like a lot Co- of communities as they are so called now are all online they're not yeah how very, much of them are in real life not not nearly as many as there should be uh but i mean online communities can be great too i think a lot of people get a lot of solace out of that but but it is important to not just be there together with people because you have common interests or common passions but to be there for people just to be there and so like not only are should you look out for the people who will be there when things get rough but be that person mm-hmm. okay a couple last thoughts just a f- final couple thoughts on gandalf and Aragorn, this obviously is not as deep of a Gandalf movie, but he, you know, becomes the White Wizard, which he, by sacrificing himself for his friends, that's how he's able to become more powerful than Saruman, which I think is a pretty cool idea. But he also, like we mentioned earlier, he's the one that stands up to Grima, right? He, like, the one that is able to break the spell of Grima on Theoden. And I like it because he, um, he's he got goodness with edge, <laughs> right? yeah. which is how you stand up to sophists so they can't weasel out. Your goodness must have some edge to it, else it is not, right? Another Emersonian tidbit for life. What is it that Peterson says? Like, if, you, if, you, if you're not dangerous, you can't be good because being able to control your danger is really what, what makes you good. That sounds like something, at least of the spirit of what <laughs> Peterson would say. Gandalf has no time for the worm tongue, right? He's like, okay, I've heard all this. No. And I like this in life when people use clear language with a purpose, right? No, (laughs) I don't care about all these other things. You shouldn't have done that. And here's why I remember. So there's a, this is a really good movie, independent film called the invitation. And basically the movie is, um, there's like a whole it's a dinner party and there's a whole bunch of weird things happening but no one can really put their finger on it because everyone's like a little bit kind of like so, so they're they're socially attuned so they don't make a big deal about all these things that are kind of weird that are going on like it just there's just stuff that's off with the hosts right and their friends but the main character he every now and again in the shows like asks very like to the point questions like why are we here or like, who the hell is this guy, right? Like, just no one knows this person. Everyone's too polite. But this guy, because he senses the danger a little bit, he's like, who the hell is he? And it's to the point, right? And there's like no sophistry there. How can yeah, there you be? gotta be? It's a, it's a, it's a direct honesty. All they're trying to, and then they're like, oh well, you know, let's. We, why are you so angry? It's like, no, answer my goddamn question. And like that level of edge is so necessary if you're dealing with something that is corrupting. Yeah, and and it it can shed light into people's. It has to be done in a certain way. Like Theoden knows that Gandalf has been his friend for a long time, so he's willing to hear that. If you're just going around saying that to people randomly or approaching strangers and having that edge, people are just gonna think you're an asshole. But if you're having that edge in the context of, you know, I care about you. Why the hell are you doing this? that's different Mm -hmm. uh and i think that's uh what he's doing there is he's saying you this isn't who you are it's it's calling forth the real theoden 
Okay, and then Aragorn, two thoughts on Aragorn. I wrote, he, I think he has the heart of a king because he sees the virtue and loves it in others. So it's not just that he's virtuous, but he's able to see it in others. So he, you know, is very encouraging and on the side of Eowyn throughout all of Two Towers as they go together. And again, this is more of a Lord of the Rings thing where they do such a great job of showing how everyone should be able to fight for what they love, right? Regardless of any sort of immutable characteristic. Uh it doesn't matter to Aragorn that Eowyn is female. Um, she has just as much right as anyone else to fight for what she loves. And he is so not just on board with that. Cause that's underselling it. Like he understands that that's actually what gives life, like a life force to this culture. And that's, you know, again, an underpinning of why he's the wise King as opposed to the tyrant he understands how to encourage the goodness in others to come forth because that's what's more important than him. He's also a wise king because, you know, he never takes authority. He earns it. Yes. Um, Well, that's a great segue into my next point where when he is, I can't remember who he's talking to, but he says, then I shall die as one of them where he's going to go to Helm's Deep with all everyone from Rohan, right? This is another thing that makes him heroic, right? Where he... You know, Theoden said earlier, like, where was Gondor or where is Gondor? And I mean, Aragorn in this situation can easily say, well, I don't know about Gondor, but I'm here. Well, and Gondor's king's here or the rightful king of Gondor's well, here. Yeah, the, the future king of Gondor. <laughs> <laughs> but how he stays in a fight that in one sense isn't his, but again, because at a deeper level, he realized it is his. And he wants to be there for everyone and to show Rohan. I mean, ultimately, this is the kind of sacrifice that makes Rohan come and help Gondor in the third movie, right? Where uh, Rohan will answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where says he, that. He, decide, yeah, he decides to come because people have come and to this help is, him. Yeah. I, I think this is probably maybe a good thought to end on where Aragorn is the great king because he shows the heroism of a king before he has the title. Before it's political, it's in his heart. And if you need a title to wield authority against others... Or over others or whatever. Yeah, you don't, without earning it, you don't even deserve that. Yeah, that is a that's a and that's a good segue into our next episode. <laughs> the return of the return of the king. <laughs> or at least our version of it. <laughs> yeah. Um anyway, this is uh tons of fun. I, I hope you enjoyed listening because we love talking, as I'm sure you can tell by our uh aimless verbosity. So until next time, I'm Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. And this has been another Uh, episode of really two tower true True fiction fiction.